My opening question for you this morning is when was the last time you enjoyed some silence? I guess for Hannah it's been a while, or at least. <laughs> some of us enjoy silence more than others, of course, but we all need it from time to time. So do you ever take time just to sit quietly and listen to nothing but your own thoughts? I have a very precious memory of a time when I experienced a very deep and total silence. It was in Pluto's cave, which we actually have a picture of to go on screen now. And Pluto's cave is in California, northern California, near Mount Shasta. It's a partially collapsed lava tube. And I highly recommend checking it out if you're ever in that area. Al and I were on holiday together a few years ago, and we wanted to explore the cave. He took that picture of me, actually, so photo cred to my husband. Um, and so for the first bit, as you can see, you can walk right in to the cave, but then there start to be piles of boulders everywhere, and if you want to keep going, you have to start climbing on top of them and over them to go deeper and deeper into the cave. It's hard work. Uh, apparently, you can go in for about a mile, actually, before it's completely blocked off with rock. And so we didn't get quite that far in, but we did get far enough that there was absolutely no light and no sound. It was just pitch dark. The silence was like a thing you could feel. It was so heavy. It, it wasn't the kind of silence you can find anywhere in the city because there was no traffic noise in the background, no birds chirping, no rustling of trees, no breath of wind, no one talking or laughing in the distance, just completely quiet. And I don't think I've ever heard before or since that kind of silence. And Al and I turned our flashlights off and just sat there for a few minutes and tried to breathe as quietly as we could to just listen to that silence. It was so beautiful. It was a holy moment for me. It felt like we were completely separate from the world and it was just the two of us and God. I wish I could go there and soak up that silence every day. I do. And some people might get sort of antsy and bored in an environment of total silence, but for me it was literally the highlight of that vacation, listening to nothing in a dark cave. Uh, so today, we're talking about people with a spiritual temperament that thrives on silence. And at the beginning of July, we started a new sermon series called Sacred Pathways, which is a title that we borrowed from Gary Thomas's book called Sacred Pathways. And Gary outlines nine different spiritual temperaments, nine ways that different people can connect with God. And we're preaching about seven of them in our series this summer. If you want to learn about all nine, you'll have to read the book or come to my workshop on Thursday nights at 7. We've already looked in our series at the naturalist and the traditionalist, and today's topic is the ascetic temperament. Not to be confused with aesthetic, okay? Aesthetics is concerned with appreciation of beauty, especially in art, but that's not what I'm talking about today. Uh, an ascetic temperament is someone who seeks God by withdrawing from the world and practicing self-discipline. Often they're drawn to things like solitude and silence, fasting, simple living, and they're usually very hard on themselves. They have high moral standards and take life pretty seriously. And I'm sure you can think of some examples from history. Uh, Saint Francis was an ascetic, Mother Teresa, John the Baptist, 
And the monastic life of monks and nuns is one example of how ascetics might tend to seek God, but not everyone with this sort of inclination is a monk or a nun, obviously. Um, in the first week, we talked about the naturalist who seeks God through creation and through what God has made. That's what the camping scene is all about back there. But the ascetic almost does the opposite. They seek God apart from the world. They find that the world and other people distract them from their focus on God. So the ascetic loves a solitary retreat in simple surroundings. If you're a person who would be content to spend a silent weekend alone in a plain room with nothing but a bed and a chair and a Bible, then you're probably an ascetic. Um, the ascetic person is the one that Gary says most goes against our culture in the way they seek God. Because as you all know, the world celebrates excess, pleasure, comfort, fame, materialism. And the ascetic tries to live with less and make some deliberate sacrifices in their lifestyle. They focus on pleasing God and giving up anything that would distract them from him. It's a sacred pathway that many of us would do well to follow a little bit or at least experiment with. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, said that unless we have some element of the ascetic in us, we will find it hard to follow Jesus. And this is because Jesus did a lot of things that reflect an ascetic temperament. He actually reflects all of them, so I'm not saying he was only this. Jesus had everything, every spiritual gift. But um, so he got away often to be alone with his heavenly father, got away from his usual routine. And here's just three examples I'll give you very quickly. Mark 1.35 says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Luke 6.12 says, One of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. Matthew 14, 23, after he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. So Jesus also fasted as well as praying, and he taught his disciples to fast. In fact, before he started his public ministry at the age of 30, he fasted for 40 days in the wilderness. It tells us this in Matthew 4, 1 to 2, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. Way to state the obvious, Matthew. But both the solitary prayer and the fasting helped Jesus to hear the voice of his Father more clearly and receive his guidance and strength at very important and critical moments in his ministry. In that first example I read in Mark, he got up early to pray, before he made the decision to move on to the next village. Uh, in Luke, after he prayed all through the night, in the morning he chose his 12 disciples. In Matthew, when John the Baptist had just been beheaded, Jesus sought out time alone with God to seek comfort in his grief. And then while he was fasting in the desert, he gained the needed clarity about his mission and his purpose so that when the devil tempted him to turn away from it, he could resist. I want us to talk in particular today about fasting because I think it's a spiritual discipline that many of us are unfamiliar with. Most of us can see that obvious value in having some silence and some solitude in our prayer life, but fewer people see the value in fasting. 
We don't have set days for fasting as a congregation the way that Catholic churches do, for example. We leave it up to each person's choice when and how they're going to fast. But Jesus spoke about fasting as if it was a given, something that we would um, regularly do. So in Matthew 6, 16 to 18, he instructed his disciples like this, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they're fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. So what good are these instructions about how to fast if we never actually fast? We've made it something that's optional in our Baptist sort of culture, but Jesus didn't seem to think it was optional. He never commanded it, but he talked about it as if it was a thing we would do. And he said not to do it for show, not that we shouldn't do it at all. So what is fasting all about, and, and how does it help us to draw closer to God? Fasting doesn't necessarily mean abstaining from food, although that's the most common way to do it. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a Welsh minister, preacher, and author in the early 20th century, said that fasting is abstinence from anything which is legitimate in and of itself for the sake of some special spiritual purpose. So, in our day and age, you could fast from TV. You could fast from spending money on yourself. You could fast from social media. You could fast from sleep. You could fast from sex, as long as your spouse agrees, of course. Really, you can fast from anything that you will miss if you don't do it for a while. If you give up something you don't care about or that you don't do anyways, then that defeats the purpose. Because the point of fasting is, is the hunger or the desire for the thing reminds us to pray during our fast. We have to feel the hunger or the desire so that we can tell ourselves, no, today I am going to meet a deeper need instead. Today I'm going to meet my need for connection with God. And so it helps us put all our other desires in their proper place in a way that nothing else really can. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, it tells us in Scripture. And fasting, choosing to fast, helps us to develop some self-control. There are different types of fasts in Scripture. Uh, the most common kind is to abstain from food and water for a day or more. And that's probably what Jesus was doing in the wilderness. Unless he was supernaturally given the strength, he must have drank some water for 40 days. And a partial fast is also mentioned in Scripture. Um, Daniel did this when he refused to eat the food from the king's table. He said, just give me vegetables and water so that he wouldn't be breaking the standards of the Old Testament food laws. John the Baptist did a partial fast as well. He only ate what he could scrounge up in the desert. I'd rather eat nothing than eat locusts, personally, but to each their own. Um, some people in Scripture did an absolute fast from both food and water, like Queen Esther did. She was praying for the Jewish nation to be spared. Uh, the people of Nineveh did an absolute fast when they repented before God. And the Apostle Paul did an absolute fast when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. In all those cases, they had no food or water for three days. But fasting wasn't always a solitary thing. In the Old Testament, there were certain occasions where the whole nation was called to fast together. Uh, the Day of Atonement was always a day of fasting for everyone. 
And other annual fasts were added to their schedule as time went on. By the time of Jesus, it was normal for all the Pharisees, their spiritual leaders, to fast twice a week as part of their regular worship. Now, the purpose of fasting always goes hand in hand with prayer. You can't separate the two. It's not just about not eating, but using the time that we would have been cooking and eating to pray and to seek God instead. And any time that we have an especially urgent prayer request, it's appropriate to fast. So, for example, if we're asking God for his direction and guidance in some major decision, or maybe we're going to repent from some sin and we want to make a fresh start, there's a lot of fasting due to repentance in Scripture. Uh, Or we want to intercede for someone else. Maybe we want to pray for their salvation, or we want to pray for their healing, or we want to pray for deliverance from some horrible situation that they're in, then fasting is appropriate. It's also appropriate when we're engaged in ministry. So for this week, if you wanted to try fasting, even for just one meal or part of a day, you could focus your prayer on the children who are coming to our summer camps, as Hannah prayed for earlier in the service, that those kids will meet Jesus as their Savior. There should always be some purpose for the fast, but even if you do it as a regular practice, it can be really helpful to have um, a passage of scripture to meditate on while you're fasting, especially one that will relate to what you're praying about. I'd like to look at a couple of Psalms today that give hints that the person was fasting when these Psalms were written. And if not, at least they use fasting as a metaphor. These psalms, I think, express the heart of an ascetic who feels compelled to seek God through self-denial, apart from the things of the world and their usual routines. So Psalm 42, which is on screen already, um, this seems to be an example of fasting during a time of grief. The person describes their desperate longing for God as a thirst for his presence. And they're seeking his comfort, his strength in their sorrow. And it sounds like they're abstaining from food and water during this period of intense prayer. So I'm just going to read the first five verses of Psalm 42. And we sang uh, some of this, or we're going to. Did we sing it already? We sang it, yeah. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the Mighty One, with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. So this person is struggling hard to recover their joy in God. It says they're pouring out their heart to him, pouring out their soul. They're deliberately trying to recall the joys they had in the past, and they're longing for this deeper connection with God, for some relief from this dry season that they're going through. And they recognize nothing can help them recover their joy in life other than God himself. So it sounds like they're fasting and praying that God would meet with them. Psalm 63 is another psalm that connects with this ascetic temperament. This one was written by King David when he was in the desert fleeing from his son Absalom who wanted to kill him. And it's a prayer for protection, of course, 
but it's also a declaration that he's going to praise God no matter what happens because he loves God even more than he loves his own life. So let's read the first eight verses. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied, as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. So King David says in this psalm that God's love is better than life, that he hungers and thirsts for it, and that because of God's love, he's fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. Now remember, he's in the desert, so there were no great feasts out there, no gourmet meals, but he was fully satisfied. And there's no way that we can understand this unless we've actually tried fasting and discovered that this, that same kind of satisfaction in God's presence uh, can, it really can fill us. God can meet all our needs and fulfill the longings of our hearts, even if we're hungry. And what's interesting in this psalm is that David might have been fasting from sleep as well, because he says, on my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. And in Gary's book, he mentions keeping watch in the night as one of the practices of ascetics. Um, I can't say I have much experience with that, except for when my children were infants, but I know that others in our church do. There's apparently something about being awake and talking to God when the rest of the world is asleep that meets that need to get away from the world and be alone with God. So this kind of deep, deep craving for God that these psalms describe, this desire that's more intense even than our hunger for food, more intense than our desire for sleep, this is what we are praying for as a church when we say that we're seeking revival. We talked about that a lot earlier in this year. And without this real hunger for God, we're not going to experience his power in our lives or in our church. We need to taste and see that the Lord is good. That's another series we went through, so that we will crave more and more of him. And I want to suggest today that fasting is one of the ways that we can use to taste and see how good God is. Let's find out if we can experience more satisfaction from spending time with Christ than we do after a delicious meal. Is that possible? King David says it, says it is, so why not give it a try, or maybe a few tries? Uh, it's not a waste of time. Jesus said he promised that the Father sees the sacrifices that we make in secret, and he will reward us. We read that earlier. I have one last scripture for us to look at today. Not, not just yet, though, guys. Um, we'll put it on screen in a minute. So this last scripture, it also expresses a heartfelt longing for the presence of God. But in this case, there's not really any other clear motive. There's no particular reason for seeking God so intensely. The author is not grieving, not asking for protection, not really declaring anything. He just wants to spend time with God because God is so good. And one of the spiritual temperaments that we're not going to preach a whole sermon on is the contemplative 
And that's someone who just needs to adore God and spend time with God. And they remind us that the only thing that each person can give to God, the only unique thing that no other person can give, is our personal love and affection. Many people can serve God in the same types of roles. They can do God's work in the world in similar ways. But only you can give God your love. And he could have the love of every other person in the world, but that's not the same as yours. And if three of my children loved me and one didn't, I wouldn't be satisfied. I would want a loving relationship with all of my children. And God is the same way. And so contemplatives want to love God and sit in his presence and adore him the way Mary did at Jesus' feet. And the reason I mention this is because the ascetic temperament and the contemplative go together through history. People engaged in these ascetic practices like retreat and silence and solitude and fasting so that they would have more time to contemplate God. This separation from the world is not just separation for its own sake, but so that loving God has more of their time, more of their attention. And so we're going to close our sermon today in a unique way. We're going to do a contemplative exercise together. We're going to read aloud together, all of us, the first four verses of Psalm 84. And then they're going to, there's going to be a minute of silence. And then I'll read it again, just me. Then there'll be another minute of silence. And I want you to read it silently to yourself. Okay, so the first time is all of us. The second time is me. The third time is just you in your heart. And so after each of the times that we read it, I want you to notice what stands out to you in these verses. What words what images come into your mind, and just listen to what God impresses on your heart in that silence. What is he saying to you today through these verses? Now, we're going to have to get a little more comfortable with silence than we're used to. That's okay. It's only three minutes. We can do it. And uh, we talk too much, I think, in God's presence sometimes. So today we're going to practice some silence together. So let's put the verses on screen now. We're going to read them together. Okay? Read with me. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar, Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you.
How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar, Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Now you can read it silently to yourself. Let's put it on screen, please. And remember to think, what words or images are coming to your mind? What is the Lord saying to you today? Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more and more. Amen. <laughs> 